Yes, hello everyone. Welcome back to the Number But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and of course, as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, there's been a lot going on both in the Bruce world and the real world. Yes, I was going to say that you've had a heck of a three weeks here. I mean, first week you got the new Bruce album, followed by a Dodgers World Series victory. I, Finally, I, I, I did go to Dallas and witness Game Six of the World Series, but uh, one of the great moments for sure. And <laughs> now we have uh, a decision in the presidential race. Joe Biden has been elected the 46th president of the United States. We know that Bruce is going to be very happy about that. <laughs> yes, he is. Um, a lot of us are happy about that, though. So I can't limit can't limit that to just Bruce. Now, interestingly, one of the things we were going to talk about was he did from my home to yours called Farewell to the Thief. But uh, I don't know if there's much to say about that now. <laughs> the thief, as Bruce would term it, is is gone and deposed. Yes. And it's one of the let's be honest, it's, it's one of the few times Bruce has been right in his political uh, predictions. Uh, be back Kerry in 04. That didn't work out. He did back Obama. Both, no, I both think he's times. like 50, he's 50 50, basically. Yeah. Since but he but really they, got involved. But then you, but then you throw in the what was it the the pro, the California proposition in '96 that lost. You got the Double Take magazine that pretty that went defunct soon after the, the 2003 benefit. All right, well so. you're bumming people out. Let's <laughs> focus on the positive. All right, so Bruce was finally right about something political now. So let's let's ride that one into the sunset. But before we get to the letter to you stuff, and there is a lot of it, including the movie. Uh, let's talk about our new archive release, which was from the Magic Tour. Yes, uh, April 28th, 2008, from uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, and I was there, and it, it, was a, it was a fantastic show, so I was very happy to, when I heard that this was the selection. A very good choice. I spent much of the day today listening to it after the call was finally made on the presidential race, and really great versions of Sane the City and Trapped, and, and the opening with Roulette and Don't Look Back is, is pretty colossal. Yeah, I remember we had heard you know, because of the whole GA process, we were there for the to hear the sound check, and it was it was exciting to hear those too. And but of course, just because he sound checks the song doesn't mean he's going to actually do it in concert that night. So, so it was great to finally get all that all that suspense just just over and done with in the first two songs. And you know, you and you look at Mary's place, and it's obviously you have the the, the memories of the twenty minute version from two thousand three, but. Finally, hearing it in the a succinct the album version, essentially, it was that was a major highlight too. Yeah, the whole show is pretty damn good from start to finish. The Bobby Jean really hits home. Of course, this was right after Danny passed away, and I, I think just another excellent choice by them. What, one of the things, and we haven't talked about the Magic Tour yet. Clearly, we're going to need to do that soon. I do hope at some point this is another show from the period after Danny died. Of course, they had previously released Tampa, as we all expected they would. I do hope they get to the period from earlier in April, because really the Magic Tour has very distinct portions where the show changed. And obviously, I think we'll talk about that when we get to the tour fully. But the early April shows were felt quite a bit different than the shows after Danny died. Yeah, well, that whole that whole week after Danny died, the shows had a they had an actual, an additional emotional weight to them. Obviously, I mean, I state the obvious there. 
and they were really rolling on quite on quite a high for 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 that week and and i think this show was the was the culmination was the peak uh, of of that run i mean Charlotte, no offense to anyone who thought the next night in Charlottesville was the greatest show they've ever seen, but it was by Bruce standards. It was kind of flat. Uh, so this was the right one to pick from, from the, from that run of shows. And a really good show. I, at some point they could potentially release Orlando as well, which was the second show after Danny's funeral. I hope they go also a little back to earlier April the and I'm thinking specifically of the first Morello show, which okay. obviously is a very landmark performance. That was, I believe, April seventh, uh, two thousand and eight, and that was that was a show that opened with Light of Day for the first time ever, and I believe the only time, right? Well, the only official like concert. It actually opened a couple of uh, bar gigs at the Pony right, in, right, in eighty seven, right. but that's a, but as you know, that's always a separate animal. Now let's go back to Greensboro for a second, and I forget. Yet when I learned, but none but the brave was on the handwritten set list for this show, and then he audibled out for Sunny Day. So that stung a little bit, but at the same time, if the show opens with two tracks from tracks, uh, there's really no no complaints that you can really make it in in, in that direction. It's a good listen, and the story he tells before saying the city is really fun, though I'm not so sure, he does seem to imply that Danny was stealing stuff. That, well, that he, was the right thing to take from that story, right? Um, yeah, he more than, I don't know, what's the definition of implied versus actually saying, but yeah. the uh, Okay, things... well, I didn't want to come right out and say it, but... <laughs> Apparently things went missing when uh, when Danny was around if, if they weren't totally nailed nailed down. <laughs> so but that yeah, was, it's a very I cool that story. was funny. Yes. And just uh, another good pick. And it, it'll be interesting to see where else they go from the Magic Tour. As I mentioned, there's earlier April where there were some really good shows. They haven't picked a European show yet from that summer. But I guess we can leave that discussion until we talk more about the Magic Tour. Right, and then of course you've you've advocated for Nashville for a while, and yes, Nashville, and, I, and, and then I always like to go back to October or November of the tour. I know they already released Boston from from '07, but something from like like say October would be really cool to hear as well. That makes sense, and I hope also at some point they do pick a European show because we have four shows from this tour, and they're all from the United States. <laughs> yeah, we need to try to try to have some variety in there. And speaking of variety, we really do have a pretty big <laughs> potpourri tonight, I would say, of stuff to discuss. Let's start, of course, with the Letter to You movie. The last episode, we exclusively discussed the record. Now we're going to talk about the movie. I've seen it twice now. I know you've seen it. W- what were your thoughts on the movie? Well, just to be perfectly blunt and honest here, um, I didn't find it very compelling until the last 20 minutes. Up until that point... It was like it was seemed to be a collection of music videos of of the songs and and to be honest, that's where the letter to you and and ghost videos came from came from right from that film yes. the ones they released on YouTube anyway, and you had interspersed with Bruce talking with band members and band members talking and and that was interesting to see it was whenever you see Bruce on the screen, it's great, but there wasn't anything there to make me really say, oh, yeah, I'm gonna watch this again." Until the last 20 minutes when he started, when they were working on I'll See You in My Dreams. And Bruce was talking about mortality and people who have passed. And that's that's the only time in the film that I really felt 
connected to it or it or connected with me. Oh, I, I hear your thoughts on this. And, and I can't say I disagree. I mean, I think my feelings are a little bit more complicated. And I don't want to just compare it to the Western Stars movie. But of course, the Western Stars movie just came out a year ago. And, and it's a natural comparison. I thought the Western Stars movie was much more compelling. First of all, there was an existential quality to the Western Stars movie when Bruce was talking about how it had taken him so long to learn to love and to not push people away. And then it paid off at the end with that footage from the honeymoon when they were at the cabin and it was so emotional and so compelling. I agree with you. That is not in this movie. The Letter to You movie seems as a much more of a promotional piece for the record, whereas the Western Stars movie was an artistic statement that was a compliment to the record. And I, I, I do agree with some of the things that you're saying here, for sure. Well, the Letter to You film, before it was released, I, it was, I had the impression it was Bruce and the E Street Band in the studio working on new songs which is what it was. But each song was already a finished product yes. that they showed in the film. What I was, I, and I saw somebody made a comparison to Blood Brothers on one of the online message right. boards. And, right. and that there is something about Blood Brothers that makes it more, that should have been applied here. Well, and, I can address that because making a cinema is about tension and Blood Brothers had the natural tension in it that these guys had broken up, Bruce had fired them, let's be clear about it, and right. they were coming back together for just these few days, and there was tension in the room. I mean, you could okay. tell it in the movie, and you could tell it when they were working on the songs, and there's no tension here. There's a lot of love in that room, and that's great, because we all want them to be friends and to, <laughs> to, to like one another, and that's a great part of the musical story but for cinema they they didn't really take you through the artistic process in the no. same way i felt that blood brothers did no. because if you think about blood brothers even when he was going through the different versions of the title track blood brothers he was really struggling to find the song and we got that from the narrative of the movie here maybe he struggled to find the songs in these sessions we never saw that Right, right. One of the things I really enjoyed about Blood Brothers was the hearing the different, slightly different arrangements, whether it be a Blood Brothers or, or even this Hard Land, and there was none. There was no evolution of the songs. I would have, I would have loved to have heard, even just for ten, fifteen seconds, one of the recordings right off of Bruce's iPhone, to see, okay, this is what, this is how it started. And then this is this is the fully finished product. I think that would have been a really interesting thing to see. I didn't. Otherwise, it was just Bruce in the studio with the band. There wasn't there wasn't much to it for me. I was actually waiting for that. And we did get a little of it on Ghosts where you did see Bruce playing it to them acoustic and and them yes, taking okay. the notes and and then they recorded it. But I agree that you didn't really get that. Fully, and, and I do think that they should have picked one song, whatever mm -hmm. song they wanted it to do, and basically take you through the entire process. And you're right. We would have seen Bruce playing the track off his iPhone, even if it was just him alone, refreshing what he had done. And then we could have seen Bruce playing it. And, and then th in the studio that they would have been working it out, we would have seen maybe like a rough version. 
And that's definitely one of the things that I found a little strange from a narrative sense, because we're basically just seeing the versions that are on the record. So you're right. It basically becomes like a promo video as opposed to an artistic telling of what really went on in the studio. Now, I don't want to seem like we're being really overly critical here. Obviously, we are expressing some criticism, <laughs> no doubt. And and I did enjoy watching it. As I said, I've watched it twice. I, I do think there's something fun about it, but it definitely does not have the impact, at least for me, uh, like I said, that the Western Stars movie did or Blood Brothers did. This was much more like we've got a new album. These are the songs. And this is a compliment to sell the record. Well, what I read or heard somewhere, and I'm, I mean, there was a lot, lot to hear and read over these last few weeks. Um that this was intended to be kind of the before uh, version of the album in terms of this was them in the studio, and then they were going to go on the road, and they were going to shoot, film some shows, and then they were going to put together live live videos of each of these songs. And, and that would have been a before and after, such as the, the evolution from the studio in Colts Neck to the stage at the Meadowlands. And I can see where that would have been a really interesting film to see. Yeah, it's obviously, look, we're all impacted by COVID and I'm dealing with it every day in that sense. And it's very, very hard to figure out what you can shoot and, and what you can do. So in that sense, you got to give them a break. And I, there are some really wonderful moments in the film uh, you, for small moments in certain cases. I love when Bruce is sitting on the couch and he's talking about that the next day they're going to do 50 year old songs, <laughs> get get ready for some wild lyrics. And, and there's the wonderful moment, which is what you were talking to in the final 20 minutes of Landau basically crying his eyes out during I'll see you in my dreams and and you understand the emotional impact that's it's having on him and 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 it is a very powerful song and uh, just to see that and then to have the band members sitting there and then I think Bruce is like it, it sounds good or something like that and, and you just you know that they nailed it right yeah that the scene with Landau is probably the was the highlight of the film for me even though it's 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 sad because he's He's crying and because the, the emotion is hitting him, the emotion of, that he has been. He and Bruce are our brothers and as the, in the band are brothers. And to see that 50 year relationship kind of play out right then and there or the or the, the cumulative effects of it. And that kind of that kind of emotional f scene was, you know, that was that was compelling. Another thing to point out when in talking about the versions being the same as the record, that's another reason why the Western Stars film has such an impact. The version of the songs in that film are both different and in certain ways equally compelling to the album version. So you're getting like a totally different feel to those songs in that movie. You think about some of the songs, especially like Moonlight Motel, where Patty participated in a way she didn't on the record. Are you, do you mean Stones? Well, and Moonlight Motel, right? Didn't she sing? Stones was one of them. Okay, yes. Well, Stones had a bigger impact on me when, when, when she was on the stage. Right, well, okay. So Stones, Moonlight Motel, those songs in particular and 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 in just in the arrangements of the songs because they were fully live and of course western stars is a album as we discussed at the time that really was put together by annie ello it it 
it creates a quality to the film. It's sort of like, and we know uh, we know it's a movie. They didn't put in anything that he's going to screw up, but it's sort of like a high wire act. And then the vignettes between those songs were really, really emotional and compelling. I mean, Bruce really laid himself bare in the Western Stars movie. And you don't really get that here. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, again, I, I think some of it is that there's just not a lot of tension these days between the band members. And as I say, that's a positive, but it doesn't necessarily make for the most compelling cinema. <laughs> no. Yeah. They were trying to go in that direction with the between song vignettes in this one and letter to you, but it just, I guess it didn't, they didn't go far enough or it didn't go deep enough. And I mean, honestly, I was okay with that. Uh, when when a friend of mine first told me about the film, I was like that it, there was there was a film similar to Western Stars. I was actually hoping it was going to be them on stage or some kind of stage in the barn playing these songs, even if it wasn't in front of a live audience. So there was a little bit, little bit. I would have preferred that more than more than what we actually got. All right. I mean, I, I did enjoy watching it. I've watched it twice now, and. I, I do enjoy the song so much that it's hard not to enjoy watching the performances. And it's really interesting that they recorded live in that manner and that they nailed the songs that way. Although one of the other things I will say is it's it's a little confusing because they did use different takes. I forget which song it was. I think it was The Power of Prayer. There's footage of Bruce singing in the booth. And then it's intercut <laughs> with footage of him singing in the booth. But in that one, he's got a guitar strap on and he didn't have a guitar strap on the cut on the shot before where right. he was singing. And it is a bit confusing, I'd say. For one thing, from a movie making perspective, I, I did kind of find it odd from a continuity standpoint. And then I think along with some of the other aspects we're going to talk about now, it calls into question the story that they built with the myth making. Yeah, well, to, just to to follow up on your comment about here here is Bruce singing in the in the booth, and now he has a guitar, and then another shot he doesn't. There seemed to be a lot of that, and and I understand and I understand it. I mean, they they spent three hours, at least three hours on each song, and they so that would be mean ten fifteen takes of each one, and so I can see where they would say, okay, well, this was from take five, and then later on Bruce decided to have a guitar so this was from take seven so i kind of i give a pass on that one i do get that the audio is one take even though that they're using shots it appears from multiple takes for picture again it just sort of felt strange continuity wise to me and uh, factoring in the stories about how the album was recorded yeah i can see that we know for some reason there's going to be some myth making. I'm not sure why it has to be that way, but that's just how they operate. And the songs are great. That's more than enough for me. I mean, this is a fabulous album. I can't stop listening to it, but it, there is definitely some questions now <laughs> about when everything took place. I mean, a perfect yes. example. I mean, one minute you're here in the movie is 100% lip synced. And not you can good. tell the the band <laughs> the band was not there, and obviously they just wanted footage of that song. I, the only conclusion is that the song was recorded at some other point in his career, probably at one of these projects that he's done with Aniello since 2010, and they 
found that it was the proper song to kick off this record. And I think that was the right choice. But, you know, again, I, I don't think that that song was recorded during these sessions. Do you? No, there was. You're right. It That song definitely. It, I, th- I believe I said it last time when I compare listening to the sound of that song, as well as the sound of Rainmaker. They both had too much synth in them to be to be from these sessions because there was hardly any synth in the rest of the album. And and so, yeah, I I I don't think those two songs are from those sessions. And and but they definitely did a great job of picking uh, one minute you're there to open the album. It's a phenomenal album, phenomenal song to open open the album. And it works as a conduit, as we said, from Western Stars. I think that was Bruce's point. And it's it's a beautiful song, and it works perfectly. But I, I don't think it was recorded during these sessions. I don't know that that matters, except <laughs> that they're telling tales that every, you know the, the album was recorded during four days last November. Right. Well, as they say, when uh, when the myth is better than when the legend is be- better than the truth, print the legend. Um, so I think that's kind of that's plays into part here. But the, of course, on the other hand, they haven't. Bruce has not been very shy about saying Janie, Janie needs a shooter was not from these sessions. I mean, oh. he called into E Street Radio and he mentioned to, to some other people on, in his promo blitz that they'd recorded it some years ago for some kind of record store record store date release. I mean, we can speculate that it was during the Darkness box set uh, sessions if they had it, if you want to call them sessions. But, and, but he just realized he wanted to hold it back for for something something bigger, which his which comments, he did. His comments there really were quite confusing because what he basically said, he certainly implied that it was recorded at another time. And then he said it was going to be a record store day release single, as you say. And then at some point he decided to use it. But did he was he going to use it for tracks two or was because he couldn't have said five years ago or eight years ago, Oh, one day I'm going to record a letter to you record and I need Janie needs a shooter. So the whole thing is a bit confusing because if they cut it and he thought it was that good, obviously I guess he just felt he put it out at the right moment, but it, it is all sort of confusing as to how Janie wound up on the record and when it was recorded. I think, we agree on this. The guess probably is it was recorded during the promise sessions. Yeah. Yes. And then looking at the credits, there's another another mystery in there in that there are three songs on which Toby Scott gets an engineering credit. Uh, One Minute You're There, Burn In Train, and Rainmaker. And, and Toby uh, Scott, I'm sorry, has not worked for Bruce since 2017. <laughs> exactly. So, and, and he's not credited on any other songs. And obviously those songs originated from another time. And, and that's perfectly okay. I mean, nobody's and it's fine. About, it's just, yeah. you know, but at the same time, they're really building on the on the myth of we recorded this album in four days, and no, you recorded two thirds of it in, in four days. The other the other third of the of the album came from other times, and then that's okay. Totally okay, and and it is interesting that they feel at this stage of Bruce's career. I mean, he has put out a body of work in the last couple of years, which is really magnificent. And I, I don't know why it has to have a story. I mean, the work <laughs> speaks for itself. And he he was always one that the, the art should speak for itself. They really do seem very intent on building up into this sort of like mystical things are happening. And, and I, you know, I don't know why that is. It doesn't change the music at all. It's really irrelevant. It's just kind of funny. It is. And, uh, that's when that's when we we like to play our role as myth busters. 
<laughs> yeah, they're, they're probably not thrilled with this conversation should they hear it. But, you know, again, we love the record and I do yes. think every fan should watch the movie once. I don't know if it's going to hold up to re repeat viewings. Uh, I have seen it twice, as I mentioned. But Western Stars is a movie to me that I will watch again and again and again over the years because I really do think it is a wonderful piece of, of work. And, and, and they obviously themselves, I mean, Western stars went to the Toronto film festival, which of course is one of the three or four biggest film festivals on the planet. It was given a theatrical release. Uh, I think that was important to Bruce. And I think that that shows you how, big they thought about that and this film now again we don't know because of covid they probably didn't complete it in the manner they wanted but covid or no covid if this was the film that they were going to release this was not going to be a theatrical release it, the type of streaming release it, would have been totally appropriate for this movie either way yeah I, I totally agree this was the a home viewing was was perfect for this um Western stars, the film needed to be seen in that in that in a theater and with the with an amazing sound system and Bruce, you know, twenty feet tall in front of you. But this one, I I didn't feel the same at all. Yeah, and and one other thing about Western stars before we move on, Western stars came out. Uh, what was it? five months after the record, the, yeah. the movie. So they were really separate projects tied to the same group of songs. This is just one project. It's like I say, it's a companion piece to the record. I think intended to promote the record. They arrived simultaneously. I, I don't think the movie would stand anywhere near as much on its own as Western stars does. No, but of course, if they, if he had released it in a theater, if, if it had meant for COVID and this, this, and Letter to You film did get a theatrical release. We, of course, would have been there. <laughs> of course. That goes without saying. And and, yes. and if we had had to pay for it, instead of it being on Apple TV+, Plus, we would have paid for it. So they, well, they get our money. That's We we know that. Yeah, well, I signed up for Apple TV for a free trial to watch it, and then I forgot to cancel it. So I did pay for it. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife is reminding me, you have to cancel it. You have to cancel it. I know, I know. I'm going to. Very soon. All right. Maybe well, you'll do that. You'll do that after the show. Okay. Sounds good. So I, I think that that probably wraps up our discussion on the movie. And now let's move into the promo blitz, at, which is holy crap. <laughs> I mean, he has been everywhere. Well, he hasn't been here, unfortunately, <laughs> but he has no, been he's... everywhere else. God, God bless the technology and the internet. He can be in, he can be in a studio in the farm and talk to anybody anywhere in the world, and so he has. <laughs> yes, he has. And <laughs> although I should say it's funny because Chris Russo, who is on Sirius, one of the famous hosts from New York Sports Radio, he actually said the other day he tried to get Bruce on during this PR blitz and he didn't get him. So. Oh. Chris didn't get him and, and we didn't get him and, and Mad Dog runs an entire serious channel. So, yeah, so we're a little bit below that. But, hey, we always have hope he's going to do that Howard Stern interview one day, right? That would be Ed was just on Howard Stern. And it was magnificent. And by Ed, I, I Eddie Vetter. Yeah. Ed, okay. Ed, sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Not, not all of us were on a first name basis with him, but that's OK. I, I did have a very nice chat with him at the Four Seasons in Prague a couple of years ago, but that's the only time I've ever spoken to him. Anyway, right, anyway, where should we start here? I mean, there is literally a mountain of 
places we could start. I think probably the one, and I highlighted this on Twitter, you and I both really enjoyed the Broken Record podcast with Rick Rubin and Malcolm Gladwell, correct? Yes, that was a tremendous interview. Yeah, very, very revealing. That's also the one place where he played. He played acoustic, and they were talking about songs, and as they would come up, they would ask him to play, and it, and it was really, really good. And uh, where should we start there? Well, it's just hard to start with the fact that they're, they they weren't – well, one thing I've noticed is that when Bruce has done the the late-night shows here in, here in the States – you know, with Jimmy Kimmel or now he actually, actually he hasn't done Kimmel yet, but he's done Fallon and now he's done Colbert. And I just get the feeling that those guys are almost like too, too much of a fanboy to really have a, a prodding interview or probing interview. And, and I think these guys did it. I, they asked him some, some good questions about the, about the whole artistic process and sustaining the career over, over these five or six decades. And I think it, Bruce's answers were, 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 I mean, they were they were interesting. Yeah, they really tapped into something. The thing that really caught me was when they were asking him about his his writing process. And he went into this whole thing about how he's the creator and audience simultaneously Mm -hmm. and that he feels like when something is moving, he knows it and can hear it as the audience when he plays it back, even though he is the creator, which is really I mean. And I, I think this is part of the reasons why he has written so many great songs. That's quite a gift because, you know, I know so many working artists and people don't necessarily know. And, and he described to them that he, he really feels that he knows when the song is going to hit with an audience. And, and that's that's a tremendous talent. And, of course, some people would argue that he hasn't always had that best best kind of ear going looking back at the. Uh, what made the river album and, and what didn't and, and ditto for born in the USA. So his, his ear has probably gotten a lot better since, uh, since 1980. Well, that's a whole separate part of the conversation they had. <laughs> and it's interesting because we should talk about that as well, but just staying on this for a second, I, I do think that it's part of it. What you're talking about conflicts where he's not evaluating songs. As we know, he's evaluating Albums And so in creating the album, he maybe has left off a song that really has quite a high emotional content or or would really hit home with the audience. But he's left it off because he doesn't really think it fits in with the overall story he's telling on that particular album. I think that that's a slightly different concept than than just evaluating whether the song works. Now, I do think there have been some cases where he has evaluated songs that worked where perhaps uh, they they really did not. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I think any artist is going to have their share of clunkers, and he, he has not been immune from that either. So, uh, obviously, some of the fans, uh, we could talk about Real Man, which is a song that I actually get a cheesy enjoyment out of. <laughs> so, as do I. <laughs> at Queen of the Supermarket, the same thing. And, and then there's, you know, to me, Working on a Dream, which he did make as a centerpiece artistic statement, Look, I I just don't think that that's a particularly good song. <laughs> well, that happens as well, and and Bruce, as an audience, not not every member of an audience is going to like everything that he does, and so that's so that can apply to him. Um, not every song, like like you said, he's not every song isn't going to be a home run, 
and he's going to have his biases here and there. So I, I kind of get that. I get that. The other thing he said that was an outgrowth of that conversation was also in terms of his writing styles, working alone versus with the band. And he said something that is, it seems obvious now that I've heard it, <laughs> but is, is so interesting in the sense that he said like Western stars, he put himself and we talked about this a lot when we did the Western Stars episode, he put himself into isolated American characters because his solo work is, that's what it is. He It's contained and, and it's isolated. And then the band work, it's inside a community, both the, obviously the actual music itself is inside a community because he's playing with a bunch of other people, but also that the songs are much more community-based songs than he works when he does a solo record like a Western Stars or a Devils and Dust. Right. Well, I can definitely see, see that just in the fact that these songs, like Ghost, it has some excellent sing-along some clap-along lines that that are made to be heard with an audience, and to be and they're made to be sung in in a community and a band, like like you said. But then on the other hand, it's a lot of the Western stars. The the music, maybe not, maybe not. They're not demos. They're they're actually full fledged orchestras on those stages. So. From that aspect, there is a huge community going on, but that is I guess he just he just takes a maybe maybe we just chalk that up to he could have taken the Western Star songs and just made them a you know a Nebraska Part Two or Part Three uh, with you know along with the Tom, Tom Joad record and Devils and Dust, but he decided to really pump it up this time or that time. Well, I think also part of it is that it's his mindset when he's talking about these things. So it, obviously, even though Western Stars is not him playing alone on a record, the mindset that he's put himself into, which is what he was talking about there, is that it's isolated, walled off. And that's what the characters in Western Stars were experiencing. Uh, you, you know, we go back to the idea, just getting through the day and waking up the next morning with your boots on. And there is something bigger going on in Letter to You because it's a, it's a, it's a much more... It's a much grander statement, really, on Letter to You, especially as it culminates in I'll See You in My Dreams. And and that is why Landau was crying his <laughs> eyes out when we see that song in the film, because it it, it, it speaks to a sense of community and, and people being together. And especially now, obviously, Landau was was crying. That was when they recorded pre-COVID. But if you think about those scenes and and what the country and the world is going through now, it takes on an almost grander mm. meaning than he even intended when he recorded the song. Yeah, that's that's an ex- excellent point. So a lot of that does a lot of the album does have a hits harder in a in a pandemic world than a pre-pandemic world, and that's a, that's a that's a great example of it. Now, one of the other things he talked about with them, he keeps saying that A House of a Thousand Guitars is his favorite song on the record, and and I can understand that. It's obviously very personal to him. It's interesting that he he did tell Ruben and Gladwell, though, that he came up with the title and he said, if I can write a song with that title that works, I think it's going to be good. And what's weird is he did not mention that Willie Nile <laughs> has a song with the same title that he has played on a number of times. So that in and of itself, I thought was, I assume he remembers that Willie Nile has a song of that title. 
I gotta, th- I, I gotta think so, unless he just knows it as a different, different title when he, when, when he played it on stage with him. But yeah, it's, it, it's pretty amazing that he never mentioned that little tidbit. It and is. His, oh, his, his good buddy Willie Nile, like great songwriter Willie Nile, has a song by the same name, but it's a totally different song. You know, I would have think he would have said that at some point, but yeah, it was not it, to be. It was it, that is a bit of an oddity now. And one of the other things that has come up and it came up in the Ruben and Gladwell interview. Bruce also did a series of shows for Apple Music. In uh, one of them, he spoke to Eddie Vedder and he also spoke to Brandon Flowers. And in those two pieces and here, he spent quite a bit of time talking about Nebraska, the process, how he came up with it and how that led into Born in the USA. And and I think out of everything that has come from these sessions wh- where he's been talking to all these people, the Nebraska talk has really fascinated me. And and here they even got him to play Nebraska live. And, and that was great. Yeah. Yes, it was. That was well, it, it seemed to tie back into this album, into Letter to You, because that was the first, Nebraska was the first time he came up with actual demos of each song. And, and the myth goes that, or the legend is that he came up with these demos and with the full arrangement. So he just, he would just take them into the studio with the band and they would play, basically play what he had on the demo, just, just with the, with the full rock band. And, and then he, then he talked about how he got too tied into those demos as time went on. And, and obviously on, on the tunnel of love album, he was really tied into them where it was, the band had the, mentality of beat the demo where they had to go in and they, they had to play better than whatever he programmed or played himself. But in, of course, in letter to you, there were no demos anymore. It was just here are the songs. As we, as we said, he, he recorded them on an iPhone or as he said, he recorded them on an iPhone and they went from there. They created the, everything themselves together. Whereas for so many years, it was pretty much already locked down before they even stepped into the, into the studio together. Yeah. Did we know that Nebraska was the first song he had written for that project? Because that is something he said in that in in this interview, and that that's one of the things that led into him playing it. And I, that I found really interesting because obviously it's a title track, and it, it's so specific because he puts himself into the character who, of course, is Charles Starkweather, an actual <laughs> real life killer, and and to think that that was really the first song recorded because. Uh, Nebraska leads the board in the USA. So if Nebraska was the first song recorded for Nebraska, and then, of course, we know in those acoustic sessions, he recorded Pink Cadillac, he recorded Born in the USA, he recorded uh, Downbound yeah. Train, and, and all those songs wind up on the record. So it, it's interesting, and it goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, where he was talking about the solo stuff is much more insulated, because you can't really get more insulated <laughs> than the mind of a serial killer. No. And, no. and Born in the USA is certainly not isolated at all. Well, the song itself Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm is. talking about the record. I'm talking about the record. Oh. I'm sorry. I well, the record, that. I mean, yeah. if he's going to talk about building a community while recording a, a record, I mean, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Born in the USA is the embodiment of that. Well, and that's well, why, as I said last episode, I find Letter to You is probably the most similar record to Born in the USA that he's put out. I would, yeah. I can definitely see that. I haven't thought about it to to weigh in, but definitely uh, I can I can see your point. So, and in these three conversations he was having with these guys, and then with Flowers and with Eddie Vedder, the, the artistic impact of Nebraska on his career really 
comes through and like you were saying the demo process and everything it led to so much later on i i did i don't know that we had an understanding i mean nebraska is a very important record it's cited all the time i think by people as as being a real influence on on sort of like the folk rock that came later and Mm -hmm. those songs are are often covered but i don't know in bruce's own mind i mean nebraska is an incredibly important record in his career as it led to not only born in the usa but the other work that came after it sounds like for him yeah i think it's it's almost like i don't want to say it's underrated or undervalued but it certainly has a has taken on a certainly a bigger bigger stance especially in the in the minds of younger artists obviously uh brandon flowers is a member of a rock band the killers so you can't really it's it's hard to say where nebraska directly influenced what they do on stage but certainly had a major influence on brandon flowers himself in terms of he was talking about how he the songwriting was just so i mean he loved the songwriting and and he's trying to do it himself and it's just a little it's such that's how great it is well, Vetter was really talking about that as well. And it seemed like it's funny because Ed was asking Bruce, how, what was the process like and how did he do the Nebraska recordings? And Bruce was, of course, taking him through the four track and all that, because it sounded like Ed wants to find uh, that kind of organic way to record for himself. Now, of course, he normally records with a band and the solo records he's done have mainly been him and the ukulele. <laughs> so it sounds like it sounds like he wants to try and put that sort of thing together. I don't even know. And Bruce was saying this. I don't even know if you can do that because Nebraska was such a happy accident. You know, it, Bruce was describing to uh, Vetter how the the tape machine was captured it was was slowed down and that impacted how it ultimately sounded and and that was one of the reasons why when they went into the studio and he talked about this i think in all three cases that when they went into the studio to tra- try and lay down the nebraska tracks it was he found it was just too polished and and it and it felt too finished in a way and and obviously the secret to nebraska was that it was this raw sort of thing that just happened and and it just really uh, because it's 40 years later almost 40 years later now it's so interesting to hear him talk about that and talk about that artistic process and that's one of the reasons why i enjoyed these interviews he he really did get into stuff we haven't heard him talk about a lot yeah and and certainly he he views Brandon Flowers and Eddie Vedder and Dave Grohl as, you know, basically as as peers at this point, at least to a certain extent, even if they even if Eddie Vedder and, and Brandon Flowers idolized Bruce for, for so many years, I'm not really sure where Dave Grohl f- falls on that on that scale. I think there was something he said many years ago that indicated to me he wasn't a big fan of Bruce, but they certainly I, have I uh, gotten along that. well since. What? I do recall that. Okay, so I'm not I'm not making it up, yeah. but they seem to have a great conversation and a great flow. And I, one of the f- funnier things was Bruce talk about how much of a non tech head he is, which I yeah, thought that was, was very that interesting. Was, that, that was funny too. That he's like, I don't even know how to turn the board on. <laughs> but but of course, I bet you if you talked about uh, guitar pickups and 
Oh, yeah. Well, you, you're you're the guitar player in the in. Oh in yeah, well, look, I'm, sure, I'm sure Bruce would just. I mean, especially with his house of a thousand guitars, that would have been a great thing if they did. Whether it was something they put out on on YouTube, they really should get someone to come in there. It probably could be Aniello and sit down. And Jason Isbell does this a lot on his Instagram, where he'll pick up a guitar of his and tell the story behind it and all that. Really would be great if they had sent someone in there to talk to Bruce and go through. Obviously, he's not going to go through a thousand guitars. I assume that's figurative anyway, not literal. Although there are a lot of guitars. Bruce has a lot of guitars. (laughs) There are a lot of guitars in that room. But it would be really fascinating to hear Bruce talk about the various guitars, why he likes certain guitars, how he picks a guitar for a specific song, because that's something I don't think he, I've ever heard him discuss. And, and of course, the Telecaster is so associated with him. But on these songs, as we know, in Western Stars, he played a lot of Gretsch. He he also played the Gibson Acoustics. That would be really great if he did that. So, uh, But just in general, they really got into the artistic process. And Ruben and Gladwell, not only are these guys big-time music people, they are fans, as you were saying. And, and they did approach it, I think, from very similar mindset that we would approach if we were talking to Bruce about these things. Uh, true. And, but they didn't let their, 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 their fanness get in the way of anything. Like, like I think, and Trevor Noah, I thought did a great job too. And all, and for the same reason is that he wasn't that familiar with Bruce's music. So he really had to research it and he, and he came up with some interesting questions that, you know, that, that Colbert is just, would just not ask. I mean, especially the one about born in the USA and you know, uh, that's how that's his legacy and how he looks at it now. Of course, yeah. I forget, I forget what answer he gave at, at the moment, but that was a, that was a much better interview to me than, than Colbert. Uh, another question that, that Ruben and Gladwell asked about was the putting together of set lists and the various audiences. And as you know, that's one of the questions I've always wanted to ask Bruce in terms of putting together a set list, especially ha- what makes you audible to something on a s- split second notice you're suddenly turning to the band and saying, you know, play X song and, and what are you reading in the crowd and stuff like that. And he didn't talk it in that granular fashion, but he did mention that he knows when he's playing a stadium, there's casual listeners there. And he, he said there are people in the audience, hardcore listeners who know every note of every song, even ones that I could pull out from 40 years ago. <laughs> And that he has to be aware that he's playing to multiple audiences at once. And he didn't really go into that big detail as to how he addresses that, which would be one of the questions we would certainly want to know. How do you how, how do you deal with the fact that you've got those different audiences in, in terms of putting together a show? And and, you know, like when he we talked about when he played songs for orphans in Trenton in 2005, which was completely out of nowhere uh, nobody would have ever thought that songs for orphans was going to be played no matter <laughs> what else had been pulled out before that how did he decide and 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 what what goes through his mind to say oh yeah this is this is something i want to play for my audience on that night uh, well, so well let me interrupt there quickly uh if only for that one song i think it was had something to do with e street radio Right, you, you and then did he had just tuned into he had just been tuned in tuned into it because it was so new, and he said, "Wow, I did that! Wow, that's pretty good. I should play that." <laughs> so I think at least in the case of the song for orphans uh, from from Trenton, I think I think we have a pretty uh, pretty solid reason. Okay, 
What did you think of the acoustic performances in the Broken Record show? The Last Man Standing, I thought was that I, that's a beautiful song, and and it was a beautiful performance. Yeah, it's one of the songs where I remember what Bruce said about uh, uh, "I Work for Your Love." Is I mean, you can have a record, you can record a song, put all the bells and whistles in the studio, but until you can strip it everything away again to to see what kind of song you have and. He certainly proved that that's that's a great song, whether it's uh, the full E Street band going at it or just him. I mean, and of course, I was really disappointed when on the Colbert interview where he he did two lines and said, oh, I forget the rest. So it was good to kind of complete the song on on this podcast. Yeah, uh, really. And I think he was well prepped. He must have known that they were going to ask him to play. And uh, the stuff that he did, he, what was it? OK, so he did Nebraska. He did Last Man Standing. Those were complete. I, I think he also did a part of A House of a Thousand Guitars, but that was not complete. Am I remembering that correctly? There's so I, much to remember from Yeah, that. there was a lot going on, and it's been a big, busy couple of weeks for, for a lot of people, so I don't remember. <laughs> the, that, the that would be, I would probably be more inclined to return to listening to that one than to watching the, oh, the, yeah. the film again. And, and again, if, if people have not heard the Broken Record podcast, it's available on all major platforms. You should really check that one out. I know Bruce was all over the place, and we're going to talk about some of the other spots as well. But this was really, to me, the one where it's essential listening. Yes, absolutely. If it, they, they knew what they were asking about. They knew what they were talking about, and they pushed Bruce a little bit outside his, uh, his, usual, uh, his usual familiar settings. The last thing I wanted to bring up from Broken Record, Bruce did mention they were asking him about how he feels when he listens to Born to Run. And he said that he doesn't really listen to it straight through too often, but he did recently do it on the 45th anniversary. I think he said he, he went in a car, right? He was with a right. friend and they listened to the entire record straight through. Yes. And his his sense was when it was done he, that he, he feels like the songs themselves are really good. But when he heard it straight through that. He thought it was a really well-conceived, well-done record. Welcome <laughs> well, uh, to the club. <laughs> yes, uh, glad that you've recognized that now. I'm kind of, I'm kind of surprised he wouldn't have had that realization back in 2009 when he was doing the four full album performances of it. But I guess when you're doing it on stage, is a little bit different than when you're listening into your car. So you're really focusing on, on what you did. In 1975. Yeah, it's it's the uh, uh, you would think that the man would know how good the record is, and I'm sure he does. But it was just funny to hear him say that that. And, and the last funny comment from that was that, you know, he says he sometimes writes a song and goes that that's pretty good. Hope it's not the last one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got one more in him. Hope, hope he's got one more. Always got to hope that. And of course, do you want to talk about our favorite little topic in relation to to these things yes we should go ahead <laughs> they asked him how many songs he's written and he said and not released and he said about a hundred and i'm going to guess that's on the low side and that's that's the number of songs that he's recorded he's written and recorded and polished up enough for a potential release so yeah that may have been a direct reference to tracks too although well let's see how many a hundred songs yeah that would be about 10 discs right yeah yeah. yeah, and and he did mention it when he called into E Street Radio and, and Jim Rotolo, and that's where he that he did say that when he was working on tracks too, that's when he came across "If I Were the Priest" and "Song for Orphans," 
and and then he he moves in a different direction. So he's definitely working on it. It's it's you know who knows when we'll see it, but he is working on it. And then after all this work, uh, I'm sure we will see it at some point. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this. One of the things that I thought was funny is when I heard him refer to it as tracks two. I wonder if that's what they were calling it, or if it's now gotten picked up because that <laughs> they know that's what the fans have been calling it. It's really actually quite funny. Uh, I don't know. Oh. Uh, and then apparently Max uh, has done a lot of overdubs in the studio uh, with Ron Aniello working on about what forty songs worth of song, forty songs worth of drumming. So yeah, so that and I he, thought that was pretty big too. Max's comment was actually strange because he said he was not familiar with any of those songs, which would lead you to believe that they weren't songs that he played on originally, and that they were from all different periods. So. The implication there was that Max is being put into tracks that were otherwise recorded with different drummers. It seemed to me, isn't that what you took away from that? Well, I I look at it; these are either different drummers or drum machines. Oh, I'm thinking, I'm, actually, well, or maybe Gary Malabar has been excommunicated. <laughs> well, maybe, <laughs> I'm, but I'm thinking the tracks about... to uh, fiasco. <laughs> Oh, yeah, from, yeah, from uh, what's that, a year and a half yeah. ago? Yeah, well, well when Western Stars came out, that his stuff was not on the record because of uh, because it didn't make it, but it was going to all be in a big box set that was coming. <laughs> that was, of course, what set off. That was what felt freed me up to say, okay, we had heard a little bit, and, uh, and he, that was quickly taken down uh, a day or two later. <laughs> yeah, very quickly. But I was just thinking that some of the like the Hollywood Hills stuff from '83, the was it my hometown, Johnny Bye Bye, Shut Out the Light, a lot of that stuff was probably done on using some kind of drum machine, and and I wouldn't be surprised if they brought in Max to make it sound sound but livelier. But that's my point because Max said he wasn't familiar oh, okay. with the song, so. I don't know. Maybe he meant he wasn't familiar with the specific recording of the song, which would be different because that would apply to something perhaps like Shut Out the Light. But I can't imagine that Max would be like, I'm not familiar with Shut Out the Light, as we've discussed. And as Brian Hyde said to us, Max is like the official, unofficial <laughs> historian and, and archivist of the E Street Band. I'm pretty sure he knows all the songs that have been released. Uh, that's a good point. That's a good point. And I was thinking of, I guess, One Love and Your Love and some of the other ones from 80 from that from that spring of 83 that well, I do we know do we know were those songs recorded during the born in the USA sessions some of them were some of them weren't so I don't when we did our USA sessions episode I actually had kind of a list going but I've forgotten it by now <laughs> I'm getting old what can I say don't have the don't have the rain man memory anymore the other promo stuff I think is worth talking about the two episodes on the Apple Music, one he did with Landau and Clive Davis, and it was just, to me, interesting to hear those stories, especially about how Clive helped shape greetings, and you think about where Bruce might be if Clive Davis hadn't given him that advice. <laughs> of course, he's got a very deep relationship with Landau. And then the episode with Steve, as always, those guys, I mean, you put those two guys together in a room, uh, and they are just funny. Yeah, it was... Yeah, if they could, if they could do a regular thing, that would be pretty awesome. Like, I mean, the the E Street Radio show from from his home to yours that they did back, I guess, was it April or May? Was, I mean, that was essential listening for for basically all of us, or should or should be. Yeah, and to hear to hear him, you know, joke a little bit about, hey, yeah, I recorded you know 
nine songs for Born in the USA in the first month, but then it took me another two years to get the to get the last three. But hey, it included dancing, so it was worth it. Well, that was the that was the killer part there because Steve busted his balls and was like, "You took <laughs> you wrote you took three two years to write three additional songs." And Bruce was like, well, "Yeah, but one of them was Dancing in the Dark." There was it common knowledge that Steve had told Bruce to take that song off the record. I think i knew that i think steve was a much bigger fan of no surrender than of dancing in the dark uh, now we know that dancing in the dark is not typically the type of song i don't think that steve would gravitate to we understand no. that but that's that's pretty funny that he said to take it off and bruce did remind him of that uh, that <laughs> as well he should yeah because uh without dancing in the dark this is going to be a different conversation perhaps uh, very different. We may not even be here. I may not even be here if it wasn't for Dancing in the Dark. But that's a different story. That is true. And and Landau, just hearing them and the, the, the first times they met and, and all that. Uh, it, for uh, And I know that some fans criticize the organization and they criticize Landau. Look, and I've said this before, the job of the manager is to maximize the client's interests, not the fan's interests. It would be nice if when those can align properly. But John Landau, and he happens to have just been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As far as, and I know a lot of people who are managers out here, talent managers, really nobody has done a better job because he has made his client richer than we can. <laughs> Anyone Ever imagined, <laughs> and not only that, the man has artistic autonomy that really very, very few artists have. So, in in that regard, I mean, Landau is there working for Bruce, and he he has done a pretty amazing job on Bruce's behalf. And it's always interesting to hear them talk about the genesis of that relationship. Right now, what I thought was really interesting about their conversation was about Bruce was I. I this sounds mean to say, but I got the feeling Bruce was already kind of going to, going behind Appel's back to to get some help for for the next project. He wanted Bruce wanted to take it to the next level. He wanted to know how to get better, and he was so he called someone else to, to find out how to do that. And I guess maybe it wasn't his intention to, from the get go to eventually bring him in, but those early phone calls certainly led to a obviously a very long and healthy relationship. And I think that that's understandable. Bruce was a kid. He was struggling. He had, as everyone knows, two records that were out. He was really under the gun. And he, he had to make it work. And, and he found someone who he thought could help that happen. And and as we know, and as I just said, I mean, it has happened in ways <laughs> that I, 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 24-year-old Bruce Springsteen could have never imagined, I'm sure, his life today at 71. And that's in large part because of John Landau, John Landau management and the, and the people there, including Barbara Carr, who have helped put Bruce into this position and, 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 and kudos to them for that because it's, it, uh, Bruce has a really good life and I'm sure he's deeply appreciative of, we know he is. Well, but just knowing what would happen between, between Bruce and Mike Appel and, and John Landau, hearing the description of the first few times that they talked kind of you know, the foreshadowing, not the foreshadowing, but knowing how the story ends was kind of, a, I kind of cringed a little bit, to be honest. Well, you know, that's, I think, life. And yeah, I know, I know. It was uh, it, just, it, it, look, it sucks for Mike Appel. <laughs> I don't think there's much question about that. I don't think he's hurting, but. I'm sure he's not hurting. And, and obviously they have a solid relationship, it seems, these days. 
But you would have wanted to be Bruce Springsteen's manager the last 35 years. That I'll tell you. Oh, yes, I know. I know. As much money as they've made for Bruce, the managers, they deservedly get their cut. <laughs> and they deserve what they get. So I got to hand it to them. And uh, I think that about wraps up our, our, our letter to you part two discussion about the film and the promo blitz. So and then the next one, Hal, you're, you're excited about. Yes, very excited. We're going to take a look at a what if. What if the Letter to You tour was starting right now and and what we think would be played opening night. And, you know, it, it, we you and I have been doing stuff like this for <laughs> I don't know how many years, many years, every time there's a tour. But, you know, this it, it, this does take on a little bit different feeling because, of course, when we normally do this, uh, we know there's going to be a tour and, and we do know that there's going to be a tour at some point, I believe. Hopes, I, I hope so. I, I mean, yeah, we know that that's the intent. and But unfortunately, right now, you know, we're just going to be, as I said, talking about what if. And yeah. uh, But I, I have already been working on my set list when I was flying back from Dallas after we won the World Series. I was we? on the plane. Well, <laughs> yes, there were 11,000 Dodger fans there. We were we were a part of the story. And 11,000 Dodger fans left Los Angeles, went to Dallas safely in a pandemic. So I will will say, yes, we won. We came home with a title. And more importantly, you came home healthy. I think that's the biggest yes. thing. Uh, yes, uh, that is true. Well, I, that's a whole different story and obviously doesn't need to be a topic for our podcast, but it does. I was very, very safe. And obviously, if you wear masks 100 percent of the time, it really does help. Yes. And but the one thing I want you to do, Hal, is when you put together your your what if set list, mm-hmm. listen to it, put together on your iPod. Oh, that's a good iPhone. idea. I did listen when we did the Born in the USA alternate version. I did listen to that for a while before before we said it in public but uh that's a good okay. idea i probably will do that yeah and I mean, that gets to what we said what 25 27 songs yeah okay yeah and, and right. i mean we'll we'll probably get into this a little on during the next episode during the what if but you know what i did just experience it, the, fr- from a real perspective of concerts what i did just experience when when i went to the stadium globe life field for the world series in dallas people were distanced and it did to me open the door you know, next summer, I don't think it's going to happen, but could Bruce play shows in Giant Stadium to 20,000 people, which would make them a lot of money? I don't know what the feel would be in those stadiums with that much empty space, but I, I think it could be done. I mean, there's been no reports at, at any of these at baseball games or football games that there's been widespread uh, transfer of the virus. So just it keeps my hope up and my fingers crossed that. Whether it's Bruce and obviously they're a bit of an older act, but that by the middle of next summer, hopefully, even if people are playing more spaced out, that there'll be opportunities for us to go see some live music. All right. Well, we're playing it extra cautious here in New York, so um, can't say that's something we would probably do, but uh, it's I can see it happening. Well, I just think, and you know, this will be a conversation for another day, but outdoors in in MetLife with 20,000 people in a 75,000 seat stadium, I think you could do that safely. And and look, artists can make money that way because at 20,000 people, if you're charging an average price of 200 bucks a person, that's still $4 million a night. So <laughs> it just hangs out there as a possibility. I don't think it's going to happen, but I, it would be great if we could have some live music. I think that's that's really the point of what I'm saying. And I know we're all missing that. And 
you know, that's part of our what our what if is going to be. The first night back is going to be pretty emotional no matter when it is. Yes, it is. And unfortunately, one fan who will not be at that show is uh, is, is Holly Price. Uh, many fans will will know her from the Live in New York City and the July 1st, 2000 recordings as Miss Holly uh, during 10th Avenue. And sadly, she, she passed away today after a long, long battle with cancer. And she was just a, she was known. She was a friend and she was well known to to many fans around the world. And she will definitely be missed on the on the on the next tour. Oh, yeah, it's just it's terribly sad. And I think we can say we actually had been talking to Holly about making Mm -hmm. an appearance on the podcast. She actually really wanted to do it. And then unfortunately, she got too sick to be able to come on with us. So but we send our thoughts out to her friends and family. Yes, she uh, she was a regular at a, at the Pony back in uh, back in 1982 when she was living in New York City. But she was down at the Pony every Sunday night, and uh, she saw a lot of great Bruce shows, and she had a lot of great stories from from the 80s and the 90s and and today. So we will miss her. None but the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. You can subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. We're on Apple. We're on Amazon Music. We're on Spotify, and if you wish to converse with us, we can be found on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. Our website is nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.